Hello, and welcome to another episode of the How to Scale a Business podcast. My name is Hector Santiasteban, and I am your host for today. We're here with Alina Matson, and she's a co-founder of Glossbird, which is a game studio. And we're going to talk about the journey to starting a really cool freaking business. So Alina, thanks for spending some time and hanging out with us today. Hector, thank you so much for having me today. The journey, like I was saying earlier, has been a very windy road. So happy to share my story and hopefully inspire some others today. One of the reasons I was excited about this conversation is that there are so many opportunities to get into what someone might consider typically a boring business, right? Things like finances or commerce or things where there's already been something very established. The things are very cut and dry almost. Follow this program, do X, you'll get Y, it'll eventually turn into Z. I would imagine that there's almost none of that for you guys. And maybe there are some people who have started to blaze a little bit of a trail, but otherwise you guys are the pioneers doing this. So Take us through however back you think is relevant to start, but just mm-hmm. share the story of how you got here and what you guys are doing now. Yeah, fantastic. So I'm Alina. I founded a video game studio called Glossbird, and we're focused on creating wellness for gamers through games by improving their lifestyle, focusing on mental health and physical health. But where my story begins is the opposite of software. Actually, it is hardware. And so I was born and raised in Minnesota and went over to University of Wisconsin for mechanical engineering. As a kid, I loved doing two things. I loved playing video games and I also loved building random crap and inventions in my backyard. In middle school, I was the most popular kid in the neighborhood because I built a hovercraft that everyone wanted to ride. That's so cool. Fast forward a little bit, because we could go off track here, and I'm sure there are more hoverboard iterations. But I guess my question is, were you in an environment where that was kind of encouraged, where your parents kind of maybe facilitating that? Or were you the rebel child that was going against what they wanted you to do as well? That's, oh my gosh, that is such a fun question, because it was the opposites. My mother was team, that is a horrible idea. You should not be using power tools and jigsaws and doing all this stuff. It's dangerous. You should really be focused on learning to cook and clean and homemaking and and traditional things. My dad was like, heck yeah, you're the son I've never had. Let's do it. (laughs) And so, yeah, a rebel in one way, but very supported by my dad in the other way. That's very cool. And so you always seem to, you were tinkering and building things. You know, I'd imagine that video games were probably something that you also played or like, how did video games come into the picture? Yeah. So growing up, I've always been the shortest kid and the weakest kid. I was the kid that when we had dodgeball and dodgeball was allowed in gym class, all the kids would gang up on me and aim for my face. That was the goal of dodgeball class. And so video games became my refuge and the thing I turned to when I got home. It was the first thing I did is play video games. Video games were there for me when I was like sad. They were there for me when I was happy, when I would have friends over. It was just always this constant source of joy and relief. And was there always an idea that you were like, because you were building these real tactile physical things, was there always an idea that you were going to eventually transition into building games? Or how did that kind of start to emerge? Yeah, yeah. So going to college and doing mechanical engineering, that's when I first learned about startups. The first time I ever heard of the term startup 
And first time I heard about the term entrepreneurship, and that was very interesting. And so I always knew I wanted to build stuff. But I took a programming class my freshman year that I didn't do very well in. And so I was scared of all software. Looking back, I think that's one of my bigger regrets is giving up that path right away because I think I could have started software development and game development so much earlier in my career, but I just didn't believe in myself and I was decent at mechanical engineering. And so just went all in on mechanical engineering and startups. And so when I graduated and was looking at the job landscape in the Midwest, it was a lot of injection molding factories and manufacturing jobs and really not that much creativity. And without knowing anyone, I packed up my bags and decided to move to Los Angeles or more specifically the Silicon Beach area where I could start working with startups. Yeah, it's so funny. My parents now live in what is now called Silicon Beach. Growing up, it was it was like the far from that. So that's exciting. So I'm curious, if you don't mind going back to that, let's call it, you said you giving up that path. What gave you the confidence to go back into it? You said that that's not me. I'm not good at like, you know, kind of made these perhaps assumptions. What gave you the confidence to be able to get back into that world? Because they do seem like they're two totally different worlds. Yeah, gosh. So my entire career through like high school, even and college and then post-graduation, I had a ton of imposter syndrome. And so really to get to switch back and to really pick what I wanted to do with my life was spending several years trying to get over this imposter syndrome. And there was no better way than getting thrown in with a bunch of startups. For at least two years of my career, I was one of 40 engineers that were women. I did not see women at all. Like, honestly, I was harassed a lot at my job. I was not taken seriously for my gender, for my age, and just a lot of hurdles. And the first year, I was pretty sad and depressed over it. But after seeing through, hey, it's them, it's not me, I just need to work on myself and keep improving, it almost became a challenge to myself. And in a strange way, I almost got addicted to pushing myself further and further and further. Okay, I'll start with this $50,000 project. And like, no, I am the youngest person at the company, but I want this $2 million project. And just kept growing and growing in my career. And eventually that led to hey, let's, let's take a look at programming again. Maybe I can handle it this time. And so right now, at this point in your career, you're still working on hardware, is that correct? And you're engineering, and that's here in Silicon Beach or already starting to develop and, and code? I'm doing both right now. I am learning to code. I would still say I'm a beginner to intermediate coder and actually got my start with no-code tools and visual scripting. So I'm a huge advocate as a way to get started. And so I started learning to code a couple years ago at the age of 28 years old. But to be able to pay the bills and keep the lights on, I also do hardware development as well. And so I've been, I've spent basically almost all of my career working with startups. And I've done some pretty wild startup clients. I worked on flying cars, self-driving cars, robotic manicures, consumer electronics, general beauty tech, augmented reality, virtual reality, yada, yada, yada. I could go on. <laughs> What's really cool, and I'm, I'm just guessing, but I would imagine that background and experience 
probably gives you a very light and probably a bad term for it, but it gives you a, a unique perspective in the software and development and kind of game world because you have an understanding of hardware. I would imagine that impacts your ability to develop games or you just you come in with a different perspective. Yeah, it's totally true. And so I'm going to generalize like mechanical engineers and hardware engineers and our software counterparts. But when you're a mechanical engineer or hardware engineer, you have one time to make it right. If you mess up the design of a part, let's say I'm designing this mouse here and they send out the mold that will mold the plastic and it's wrong. That is a $50,000 mistake, a $100,000 mistake. I made a mistake like that my very first project at my very first job. It ended up being a couple grand worth of mistake and I thought I was going to get fired. But with software, you can push up a new version of your code. You're unlikely to take down the whole system. Even if you did, the system is down for a day. You did not spend that much money on your mistakes. And so coming in now into software world, I have this very kind of careful view of doing things right the first time. I'm trying to unlearn that in some ways. But then the other thing that manufacturing and hardware has taught me is scheduling, long lead times, like all of it is super critical. It's so easy for a hardware project schedule to slip. And so when folks work with me, they know I'm the person that stays on time and on budget. And I'm very consistent about that and using strategies to always stay on time and on budget. And software projects fall out of schedule all the time. Yeah. In your role now, is that where you spend most of your time is leading those? I'm so naive to it. I'm going to say development sprints or like leading the development team and whatever sort of on how you guys run things. But is that kind of your role is overseeing the actual development and kind of execution of that whole thing? Yeah, you're exactly right. So I wear a couple of hats at the studio, but my main role is a producer and director. And so my job is to direct all the teams. And so you could split up a game studio with the technical side. So the game developers writing the code that runs the video game. But there's another huge side, which is the art team. And so they're making the 3D models, the animations, the special effects. And so you got to combine these two teams that typically have very different personalities and have them work together and manage both of those schedules to build a video game. Video games, I've been told making video games are really hard and it's true. I think it's almost as hard as hardware, not as hard. And so very much I, when someone told me video games were really difficult to make, that kind of set me like, oh yeah, okay, let's try it then. Alina, I would love for you to just share some more things that you've learned about integrating these two teams because i think that's something that you're probably at the extremes of right hardware develop develop excuse me software developers coders and just they the person and i'm sure there's some crossover but i'm curious about how you've been able to integrate and get those two things to work cohesively Today's episode is brought to you by Amplify Media, and we are a content and podcast production company. We like to think of ourselves as genius makers or genius creators. So if you have a mission, a message, a passion, a purpose that you want to get out to the world, but don't necessarily have the time, the tech skills of the team to do that, we can help. Go to AmplifyMedia.com. That's A-M-P-L-A-F-Y Media.com. You can also check the show notes for the link. And with that, let's get back to today. 
So Alina, I'd love for you to take this a couple of ways. And because video games were very much a part of my upbringing that my dad brought home when I was three years old, he brought home one of these like arcade, like the whole big box. And he found it was probably more for him than it was for me. But ever since then, I was just fascinated by it. And I'm actually going to take this a different way than I thought to. And that is the mental health side of gaming. I think that gaming gets a lot of perhaps negative attention in terms of how its effects are on people's mental health. But you mentioned something really interesting was that games were there for you. They helped you to perhaps helped you to create great times that they're not just this thing that's damaging the minds of the youth, right? That there is a constructive or can be a constructive aspect to gaming. So before we get into some of the tactics and leadership, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the mental health side of gaming. Yeah, video games are truly magical because video games are just another form of interactive entertainment. Video games do have its own academic definition of it needs rules, it needs to have a goal, and you need to actively participate in it. You can't force someone to play a video game per se. And so looking at that, and even the thing with rules is maybe changing as we start moving into the interactive entertainment space. Video games just allow basically players and users to live in a fictional world where they can do different things. You can become the knight in shining armor in an RPG game. You can shoot and kill all the aliens and get your aggression out. Uh, You can play Animal Crossing and build the dream home you've always wanted and cottagecore farming lifestyle, whatever you're into. And so there's so many ways to express yourself within games. Folks have expressed themselves, explorations in gender identity, explorations in different careers and jobs. You're playing The Sims and you pick a different career than you actually have in real life. And I think it's a really beautiful thing. And those types of avenues and explorations is great for mental health. It's a great way to de-stress. And there's been a lot of studies around the space that video games are proven to help folks de-stress. It actually improves attention, it improves focus, improves hand-eye coordination, and there's a lot of benefits for video games. Yeah. And the space is evolving, right? I think that the mediums are becoming more intentional. I always look back at cartoons growing up, they were so mindless and there were some of them were helpful. But generally, when I was watching Cartoon Network or even Nickelodeon, it was just, it was mindless stuff. But I see the kids, the stuff that my kids are watching today, and it's at least they're trying, at least they're weaving in lessons and you can see that it's, there's some intentionality to it. I would imagine that the same kind of thing is happening with video games as well. Exactly. They're, now that video games have been in the commercial space since the 1980s, we've had four decades of game designers building these experiences. So we're definitely on this next level of sophistication. And I think the other reason why we're seeing these much more sophisticated games, and we're not the only video game studio focused on wellness. There's a couple of other wellness video game studios that have popped up in the last couple of years, which makes me very excited. But the new tools, like I mentioned how I got my start with no-code tools, has opened up game development to a lot more voices and a diversity of voices. What does that look like when you say wellness games? Like, what is that actually for my completely naive self? And as much as I've had to put my Oculus away since my kids have come around because I haven't found the way to 
perhaps rationalize my time. But if all of a sudden gaming is not just, it's not mindless, if there is some mental health benefits or physical benefits or all these sorts of things, then it, it comes in a different context. So how does that actually play out? What are you guys trying to do within your games to actually provide some mm-hmm. sort of wellness for the players? Yeah, so this is my definition, but what makes a video game, specifically a wellness video game, is when wellness and improving lifestyle is part of the game design and one of the pillars of the design. And so, for example, I think the greatest walking app or fitness app of all time is Pokemon Go. Pokemon Go is, it got people up, it got people moving, it created a ton of great community. And how did it do that? It was because it was designed as a fun video game and a fun experience, but definitely walking and wellness was part of one of their core pillars. That's such a great point. And it's no one would ever think that it's a walking app, right? That that it's the, or perhaps they do, but that's never something that I considered. Are there any other examples that you can think of in that same way where there's wellness that's embedded and perhaps so deeply that people don't even realize it? Yeah, a couple of them, maybe these ones are a little bit more obvious. So you mentioned Oculus, virtual reality and augmented reality platforms. Beat Saber is that rhythm dance game that it's a lot of cardio. You're getting a pretty decent workout out of Beat Saber, but a lot of people wouldn't necessarily view that as exercise. There's older games like Dance Revolution. That's also, again, a physical body moving game. Also great cardio And then really exciting, there's a game I'm really looking forward to this year that's also by the Pokemon company called Pokemon Sleep. So the more you sleep, more Pokemon you can collect. So spinning off of Pokemon Go. So fun. What about you guys right now? What are you most excited at your studio? And I'd love for you to take an opportunity to kind of share any projects you're excited about, things that you're excited about, programs, whatever it is. I would love to hear what you guys are up to. Yeah, so at Glossbird, we're currently working on our first game and our flagship game called Fitment. And Fitment is a cozy mobile game to get gamers to start exercising one minute a day. For our game, we were really inspired by, again, Pokemon Go, and then also apps like Duolingo, and then video games like Animal Crossing. Cozy games and cozy gamer, that's a new term that is starting to be thrown around in the industry. And what that is are video games that aren't based in violence and is very focused on particular mechanics such as collecting items, decorating, completing things, puzzles, and is a really attractive genre. It's around 60% of cozy gamers identify as women, but it's also a really attractive genre for senior-aged gamers as well. And so the cozy game space has been a space that's been really overlooked by publishers and investors and the people with the money. But right now, 49% of gamers are women And so now we're starting to see a change in the space. Yeah. So cool to see that it's evolving as well. This has been so, so fun. I do want to give some credence. I want to go back to this idea of incorporating two teams or different teams. What have you learned or what sort of pitfalls or for somebody who's has to interact and have those two types of things interface, what have you learned about working with two totally different types of people? Yeah, a couple of lessons, big lessons, and lessons I've learned because I initially failed at them at first. The very first lesson I learned was each team will have their own language, 
And it's important that you pick up on the language, you pick up on the jargon. But when talking to another team or trying to explain things to the wider group, to not use that jargon. And so you got to listen and almost be like the translator for those words. The artist can talk about really specific things about like colors and textures and color palette and visual hierarchy, blah, 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 blah. The technical team doesn't really care. They just want to know, is this model lightweight enough to not crash the program? And making sure like those right information is getting passed or being able to communicate what the artists want to the technical team to program. So that was lesson one. Lesson two, and this one is like a little bit harder to balance, is where the whole studio, we are one giant team. If one person wins, if one cross-functional team wins, we all win. But there are going to be times where the art team wants something and then the technical team wants something and it does not jive. Let's say the art team wants to create this really gorgeous, large world that's going to be very difficult to render. And then the tech team says, we're going to have to spend this much more engineering hours to optimize it. How do you pick who wins? It's pretty tough. And there you do, unfortunately, you cannot appease both sides a lot of the time. Sometimes compromise cannot happen and you have to pick, okay, the tech team wins this one or you know what, the art team is right, the art team wins this one. And the way you make those decisions are done much earlier with your product specification, in our case, a game design document, the mission of your studio, and all these kind of like higher level core values kind of will dictate these smaller decisions and picking which side wins. But everyone wins at the end of the day, but you do got to pick sides sometimes. Yeah. And you bring up a good point about having those values articulated in advance because then you don't have to do it each time a small decision comes up. And I'd imagine that those team members, if it's rooted in some core values of the company, well, then they don't feel like it's just willy-nilly or it's just based on who someone likes or the politics of it, that there's something that we have a rubric for how we're making these decisions. And this is what it's based off of. I think that's a really great point. Alina, if people want to get connected with you or with Glossbird, is there anywhere to go or anything to do or see right now? Because I know you said the game is in development. Yeah, so that exercise game Fitment is out on beta. So you can download Fitment, F-I-T-M-E-N-T on the iOS or the Google Play Store. I love it. And we'll link that up here in the show notes. Alina, it's been a fantastic conversation. And my last question for you is, in your opinion, what's been the secret thus far to scaling your business to where you're at? Yeah, my secret is because I've worked with so many startups and so many startups that's have failed is assume things won't work the way you want them to. So always have a plan B, always have a plan C. I am shocked how many times I have to go down to a plan B or a plan C. And now I just assume it. And it means that we can keep pushing ahead and keep moving forward, even when that first plan fails. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks again, Alina. We thank you listeners for sticking with us today. If you got any value out of today's episode, we would love and appreciate a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts. If you know someone who is in the midst of scaling their business or thinking about starting one, please send this episode and then go download Alina's game. Let's work on our wellness and our mental health while having some fun as well. Thanks as always for sticking with us. We'll see you on the next one. Later, y'all.